You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. There's a bit of a risk here to just do the demand destruction. And if these American investors who have jumped on the gold train uh, get distracted with the next hot sector, they'll be gone in a second and uh, we'll be eating the shares of all their gold mining stocks. And uh, price of gold will, will be off uh, several hundred more dollars. So we'll see what happens. I'm Bill Powers, and this is Mining Stock Education. Thanks for tuning in to yet another episode. In today's show, you'll be hearing from asset manager, Rossau Asset Management, uh, Warren Irwin. He's a fund manager. And if you've been following this show for the last couple of years, you know that Warren has been generous enough to be a recurring guest. We primarily have spoken about uh, investing, or I should say, avoiding mining scams. And Warren also shares about his thoughts on investing in the resource sector and often shares some of his picks in his fund and why he invests in those companies. So Warren, thanks again for coming on the show. And how about I start by picking your brain on uh, regarding gold? Gold has been, uh, you know, roaring these last nine months. You think it's going higher or, 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 or are us gold bugs too excited right now? Yeah, well, my view just generally is um, I have a different view on gold than most other people. I've been investing in the gold market for, for several decades. Um, my view is this right now at this time. Uh, there's a lot of people that are out there promoting gold, rah, 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 you know, go, 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 gold. It's, this is the time. It's going to 5,000 now. that sort of thing. And those people, if you look deep down into it, they, they have an agenda. They're trying to get people hyped up about gold. And they'll flog you some worthless gold sh- shares. The reality about gold, and I'm, you know, I own gold bullion uh, on a personal basis as uh, my my version of just financial, the ultimate financial security, in my opinion. Uh, I'm a huge fan of gold long term because, as you know, they're printing money like crazy. So long term, gold is going to do fine. It's going to be a good good asset to have. And um, it's for no other reason than the fiat currencies get printed every single year. So the parks of money way in gold, I think, is a very smart thing to do. Also, uh, one place I have some very unique insights is into finding gold. I've been involved in quite a number of very large gold discoveries around the world in the last number of decades. We are having a really, really tough time finding gold, especially in the quantities that are going to be needed to replace the resources that are being mined. So gold is getting tougher and tougher to find. And the cost of production is going up and up uh, just due to inflation, of you know, materials and equipment. So over time, those are the two greatest factors that are pushing the price of gold higher. And without a doubt, in five years time, gold will be higher. Now, the problem we have here near term is that we've had a number of speculators coming at us, let's say from the U.S., uh, big U.S. investors throw some money at gold and they could really move the gold market quite a bit. The problem that would ha- with that is they generally have a shorter term in view on the market and, and, and can be quite flighty. Uh, you've heard the old thing, you watch a dog and uh, you think you have the dog's attention and they go, there's a squirrel runs across the yard and it's gone, right? That's sort of a number of these American investors are very much like that. So whenever there's a new party in town, there's a vaccine. You saw it recently here. There's a new vaccine. Well, let's jump on the airline and cruise stocks and they're just, they're dumping gold and they're onto it. The problem we have with this recent run up in, in, in the, the reasonably quick run up we've had in gold is um, it's just, it's destroyed demand from the, the two, two of the major sources of, 
gold buyers, which is, you know, the Indians. <clears throat> India is a big gold buyer, for instance. So if you've, if you've just moved gold up from 1,200 to 1,900 an ounce, that has an impact on their ability to buy gold, how much they'll buy, how much they can afford. And maybe they'll say, listen, I, I've got a whole bunch of gold jewelry here. I'll sell, sell into the gold market. And um, now might be a time to, and I'll, and I'll pick it back up later when it's a little bit lower. And it's definitely, they're value conscious and they don't want to spend big numbers, especially if uh, they expect a short-term setback here. So that's, so it's kind of hurt that demand there. And in some instances, I know in one country in Southeast Asia, uh, the prime minister had asked people to stop cashing in their people's gold for cash because you're running out of cash to pay them. So you're getting a little bit of that flow back from the recent run up. Uh, also, you know, where are the central banks? Are the central banks still buying as aggressively now at 1900 as they were at 1200? I think, you know, there's so many central banks in the world, they all have their different views, but I think it's, that's not going to help them. They're not going to want to jump in and buy them. So Near term, I don't share the, the enthusiasm a lot of people do. I think near term, we definitely need to consolidate in this level or back off a little bit. But long term, gold gold's, a, I think, a really good place to, to be due to the printing, due to the fact that we're not finding it, and just the, uh, just the inflation on the, on, the, on the cost of producing it, producing gold. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on it to go higher longer term. But short term here, there is a there's a bit of a risk here to just do the demand destruction. And if these American investors who have jumped on the gold train uh, get distracted with the next hot sector, they'll be gone in a second and uh, we'll be eating the shares of all their gold mining stocks and uh, price of gold will, will be off uh, several hundred more dollars. So we'll see what happens. When it comes to the gold mining shares, you invest primarily, I understand, in the exploration stocks. Are there any other gold equities that you would consider investing in? over the next few years? Yeah, well, you know, uh, my forte is getting involved in early early names uh, with discoveries. I find that's where we make the most money. Um, other names where you're looking at, let's say, a mid-tier to, to larger producers, those producers, um, their share price is so determinant on the price of gold that, you know, I can make the right fundamental call that, ABC gold producer is going to double production and, you know, cut their costs and everything else. But what will overwhelm that is if the price of gold drops from 1800 bucks to 1200 bucks, I'll get slaughtered no matter how good I am fundamentally on that. Whereas if I'm on a, if I, if I find a gold company that goes from zero ounces to drills up 5 million ounces, whether those 5 million ounces are worth 1200 or 1800, I will make money. So I'm a little bit more, agnostic to the price of gold. And that's where I like to be because I don't want to have my performance driven by uh, just the, the wild fluctuations in the price of gold. I'd rather have my performance driven by the fact that I could you know, get out there and find a, the next big gold discovery. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has a tight share structure, and with its current treasury, it can self-fund the advancement of its gold discovery into at least 20 2022. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. 
Warren, when we spoke at PDAC about eight or nine months ago, you had mentioned that you have a position in colonial coal. And one of the comments in response to you sharing that was basically this is an irresponsible position because of coal and the harm that it can do to the environment. If you were chatting with somebody, this person face-to-face, how would you respond to that regarding your equity stake here? Yeah, you kind of have to do this with a lot of people who are kind of misguided environmentalists. And um, I'm an environmentalist myself. I have a I love animals. I love nature. I go in nature. I've been around the world. I've been to most major jungles in the world. I see the firsthand the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and all the rainforests and jungles I've been to, because as you know, I'm in the mining business. So I, I watch what people do. And sometimes I, I I'm at the fringe of uh, fringe of development in, in the natural world. So I see the destruction firsthand and I'm, I'm not a fan of it. And um, you know, obviously in my, uh, in, in my more than half century of life, I've watched, um, you know, various uh, things happen with respect to pollution within cities and things like that. So well, the first person, the first thing this person needs to know is that um, the coal, colonial coal produces a high quality coking coal. So it's not the thermal coal that you produce uh, to burn, to, to make electricity. So, that's the first thing. So it's, it goes towards making steel. And right now there's no option other than using high grade metallurgical coal to, to make steel to, and it provides the carbon in the steel to make it hard. So if we want to be, continue to build, uh, you know, electric cars, windmills, solar panels, we're going to need steel and steel needs iron ore and needs metallurgical coal to make it. So without colonial coals, metallurgical coal, we have no steel. Without steel, we don't have electric cars or windmills or solar panels or nuclear power plants or anything that we'll need to to move forward as a society to a less carbon-centric uh, 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 world. And um, I do have a problem with, uh, with thermal coal. And um, one of the biggest travesties I see, I've seen in my lifetime environmentally has been perpetrated by the environmentalists, namely, uh, you know, let's throw a name out there, uh, Greenpeace, for instance. They've been anti-nuke since uh, Three Mile Island, possibly before that, and that was the early 70s. So uh, to be anti-nuke in the 70s, and here we are getting pro-nuke again here with these new small modular reactors. But what happened is the whole environmental movement has to look at themselves in the mirror and say, wow, did we ever screw up in the 70s by going anti-nuclear? Because, you know, what have we done? Well, for the last half century, instead of producing non-CO2 generating electricity through nuclear power, we've been burning coal, polluting our cities, and putting a lot of nasty stuff in the air in addition to CO2, namely the, the cadmium and all the other heavy metals into the air for our children to breathe. So that's what Greenpeace has promoted, because by being anti-nukes, they've been promoting putting carbon emissions in, from burning coal, dirty thermal coal into the air. So who supported Greenpeace during the 70s? Well, the people that were being harmed the most in the 70s by going to nuclear were, were the thermal coal companies. So it's been a t- tremendous travesty. So we've spent half of the last half century being anti-nuclear, and here we are today where people are finally figuring out, well, you know, maybe nuclear is not that bad. Nuclear... Energy, although there, there's these 
widely talked about issues with Fukushima and um, Three Mile Island. Of course, nobody died there. Fukushima people died as a result and, and also uh, the issue in, in uh, Ukraine. But if you look at all forms of other en- energy and the, the lives lost, whether it be uh, due to early deaths with respect to burning coal or the thousands of people who have died over the years from collapsing um, uh, uh, hydro dams, uh, you know, nuclear is a very, very safe source of energy. And, and the shame is we've had half a century where the amount of time and effort into creating a new fail-safe modular reactors has, has been slowed quite a bit. But fortunately now, there have been some diehards who are bringing to market, you know, generation four modular um, fail-safe nuclear reactors, which I think will really lead a renaissance in energy and just finally put a nail in the coffin of burning coal to generate energy because, um, you know, we're not going to produce the energy we need from solar and wind. It's pretty obvious, despite what Al Gore says, um, we need nuclear. And it's pretty obvious to anybody with, uh, with half a brain that uh, nuclear energy has to be part of our energy mix and it has to be a significant part of the base load power generation. So I guess that's a long answer to this, this guy. Maybe he should understand what coal is used for and uh, Colonial produces a high-grade or will be producing high-grade metallurgical coal used in steel, which we're going to need. And um, there's some technologies that are looking to reduce the carbon footprint of steel by replacing uh, uh, some of the uh, met coal with hydrogen. But then again, if you're burning coal to produce electricity to produce the hydrogen, how does that help? So we kind of got to get moving forward on cleaner energy first, and then I think over the next little while, we should be able to uh, clean up the steel business eventually too, but let's start, stop burning uh, thermal coal first. In regards to the uranium equities, you've been invested in next gen for some years and uh, the uranium speculators seem to be suffering. um, You know, just when you think it's going to shoot up, it comes back down or trends sideways. And this has been going on for several years now. Is there any hope in the near term for uranium speculators? Do you foresee? Wow, you know, like a lot of people, including myself, have been proven wrong by being a little little premature and expecting a uranium rally. I think part of that is that we've all, a number of us have been around for the last uranium rally. And I'll tell you, kids, that was a fun rally. <laughs> so went from virtually, you know, a handful of uranium juniors to like 600 uh, globally. It's just, it was just a rally and I think it was a peak around $140 a pound and uh, up from about five, six, seven dollars a pound. Like that is, that's what you call a rally. That's like the, the molybdenum rally we had some years ago too, right? So we could have a, and, and I think what's happened is a number of people like myself who've been involved in uranium rallies in the past were super excited because we know they're, they're fun as hell to participate in. So I've been, I've been wrong in hoping that, you know, uranium would have a couple of years ago started strengthening a little bit. Uh, you know, all the guys at Cameco have been wrong. I think most most senior people in uh, the uranium business, we've been, uh, you know, all anticipating the uh, the deficit in production to eventually come and uh, bite the market in the butt and lead to higher prices. So I, that hasn't happened yet. But, you know, this past year has been very fascinating in that um, we've had um, – uh, we've had, you know, cuts in production, both from Cameco and Kazataprom, the two largest producers in the world. 
And we've had some good news on the, on the demand front with new reactors being built, new re, uh, reactors being recommissioned, extend, their lives extended, things like that. And, um, you know, um, and hopefully over time, this, this product that slips into the spot market from, you know, various sources around the world will gradually dry up as the, as the supply demand deficit from, uh, or the demand from the, the users of uranium and the, and, and the supply from the producers of uranium that gap currently is made up from people who have stockpiles and hopefully given we've been doing that for quite a number of years, hopefully that stockpile, the stockpiles have diminished and we'll start getting the price up a little bit higher. For instance, second largest producer in the world, Cameco, they, uh, they can't make any money at these levels at around $30 a pound uranium. So we're destined to see higher uranium prices at some point, who knows when it'll be short term could happen next year number of smart people I know think next year could be the year. And uh, I think there's a good shot at it next year being the year. And I'll tell you, uranium rallies are fun. And what I like about it and playing it through next gen is that next gen is a quality asset that would make a ton of money, even at today's uranium prices. And uh, they're moving things through the permitting process little by little. They're a great asset. One of the best in term rates of return of any mining project I've looked at. It's a great asset to hold. And with a little luck, you're going to get a double bump, as in you'll get a run in the price of uranium, and then you'll get a bump when it's inevitably bought out by a major. So that's why I'm playing with that. I think it's a reasonably low-risk way to play the uranium market. You got into uh, NextGen several years ago. You're also invested in a big copper discovery, Cornerstone Capital Resources in Ecuador. As like Especially in the last six months, when mining stocks are going up many-fold, do you sometimes weigh the opportunity cost? I know you're waiting for a buyout, but do you feel like you missed it or are you confident in just holding on to these positions right now? Well, my view on holding on to the positions, some of my big positions, uh, you know, I can't give them to you, all of them to you, but like Colonial Coal, it's a big position for me. They're a good quality, you know, high quality coal in a great jurisdiction. Logistics are great, uh, good leadership. Uh, and then the another one, of course, Cornerstone. Then you know, next gen, the best uranium discovery in the world. Uh, one of the, it'll be one of the biggest and best uranium mines. It's class one, tier one, without a doubt. And um, and then you're looking at a, one of the top five undeveloped copper projects in the world, being Cascabel, which Cornerstone owns an interest in. That's very very exciting too. So they're they're very high quality mining projects. And my my view on it is. Uh, I was involved in all these names since they were, you know, around the time the discovery was made. Sometimes a little bit before, sometimes during, sometimes a little bit after, but I got in early on these discoveries. And my view is a good discipline to have is if I don't get paid, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a bunch of people saying, Warren, you know, you made a, you know, you made a really good discovery, get involved in Cascabel early why don't you uh, invest in our copper discovery? We'll, we'll go out there and look for some copper in Chile or wherever. And my response is, I'll tell you what, uh, why don't you guys settle down a little bit? Let's see if we get paid here for Cascabel first. If I get paid Cascabel, then I'll recycle my money back into the juniors again. But if the majors aren't prepared to pay, pay us good money when we do indeed find a top five uh, discovery, uh, there's no need to invest in in juniors. So we need to see here where uh, either the Chinese or BHP and or Newcrest or whoever ends up buying Cascabel, that we get paid a fair price. 
and hopefully a good price for our assets. And then that'll prove to me that, okay, well, it's worth it again to recycle this money back into the copper juniors and uh, let's find some more copper and then we'll uh, sell it, sell it back to the majors. Once we do make a discovery. Copper has one of the strongest six months charts. It's about $3 and 25 cents as we speak. Do you think it's copper's time now? Or are we going to see copper over $4 in a year or so? Yeah, you know, I don't have a strong view on it again, near term, but I have to think that, you know, you're looking at all the EV, uh, all the EVs out there and, and what they're coming to various places are banning the sale of you uh, of non electrical vehicles here over the next decade or so. Um, you have to think that um, the demand for copper will be pretty, pretty consistent if, and pretty strong because you're going to need uh, each electric vehicle requires about three times the amount of copper for, for the, for its build than the typical uh, internal combustion car. So um, that's just one aspect of it. The other aspect is, as you start electrifying things, everybody's going to need a nice big 220 volt cable to their garage from their electrical panel. Well, that's going to be in copper and you'll need a lot of co- infrastructure for all these charging stations. And in that, I'm sure they'll use aluminum some places, but there'll be a lot of need for copper to uh, electrify the world. So I'm pretty optimistic on copper going forward. So uh, again, what it does near term, I don't know, but long term copper is not the worst place to be in the world, in my opinion. What's your view on the deflation, inflation, stagflation debate? Well, uh, I used to be, I used to be a, give you a little bit of my background. Early in my career, I started out as a I was, a, I was a bond analyst. My undergraduate degree is in mathematics, so that lent me to do a lot of the mathematics behind bonds. And one thing I learned from the early days, you know, decades and decades ago uh, about inflation is that uh, the, uh, the inflation indicators are highly manipulated by governments, and uh, they're not really a true indicator of inflation. I think anybody sitting here watching this, this podcast knows that Inflation is not what the government tells us, right? Like you tr- try telling me in Canada here, our inflation rates under 2% when, when you're building anything, try building a house. And then uh, <laughs> it's just uh, inflation is way, way more than 2%. We've all seen it here recently in food. We've seen it in uh, some of our biggest, biggest expenses. So inflation is way above what their, the levels the government says us at. So, uh, inflation's here. It's it's percolating away. As you know, with inflation, there's a couple ways of handling it. When you start, when governments start printing money, is um, there's there's the amount of money supply. But the other factor is um, how that money gets recycled or the velocity of money. So you need those two things to get inflation, right? So you take a look at Japan, and I'm not an economist but I've hung around enough of them to know that, you know, in Japan it's interesting. They printed a fair amount of money yet people take that money and stow it away and save it. Right. And so they're not getting the inflation they need because there's no velocity. People aren't going out there and spending it. Whereas it'll be interesting to see what happens in the U S where they're printing money like crazy. Yet Americans are more likely to take that money and spend it on a new car, spend it on a new house and and spend, spend the money. So um, I think I think uh, uh, it'll be really interesting to watch here what happens. And the key thing I'd be watching is the velocity of money. 
when people start getting more of this money that's been printed into their hands, what do they do with it? Do they save it or do they spend it? It's interesting. I've been watching recently. Um, the U.S. Uh, consumer has been actually paying down debt, which is fascinating. That's very unlike the U.S. consumer to be doing that. Uh, there's another article I read recently where um, more mortgage down payments to buy houses there are record highs in the U.S. So it's interesting. Some of the stimulus money that's floating around is actually being saved and being in, in you know and uh, you know being used for things to reduce people's debt, which is interesting. But once people get past that, let's reduce debt with all this new money that's been printed. Say, let's get spending it. It'll be interesting to see what happens and uh, what happens with inflation. And uh, you got to think that that and combined with, of course, over the next few years, we're going to see some trillion dollar stimulus programs. It'll be fascinating there because uh, you're going to get China, India, U.S., all with these massive programs. And they'll be spending money on exactly what, what I'm invested in. They'll be spending money on copper, steel. They'll need uh, metallurgical coal to go into the steel. And all these commodities will be in demand to build out these infrastructure programs. So I think we're heading to, uh, you know, we're going to see some, well, inflationary pressure are building. We'll see how much that makes it into the highly corrupted and highly manipulated inflation numbers, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Would there be a better commodity than copper to be in, in that scenario? Uh, well, you know, copper is a pretty good one. Pretty good one. Uh, as far as the, the infrastructure, because when you think about it, well, you know, you can build uh, infrastructure programs, you can build highways and bridges. Well, bridges require steel and, and steel, you need iron ore and you need metallurgical coal. Okay, that's that's easy enough. We could buy some of that. But, but the copper one's an interesting one because not only do you have uh, copper going into some of these infrastructure programs, but the really great unknown is the demand for copper for electrical vehicles and the, and the electrical build-out. I was looking at some numbers the other day on lithium and the, you know, Elon Musk projections of how many tons of lithium you'll need to, to, to build the lithium batteries for his electric cars. And the, the numbers just go like this. Well, if you took, if you believed any of Elon's, you know, forecasts for electrical vehicles and you say, well, okay, well, there's this many and we'll, we'll triple the, triple the uh, copper content in all these vehicles from a normal internal combustion engine. And oh yeah, by the way, we're going to be building a bazillion miles of uh, electrical uh, cables to, to, to all these new charging stations that are going to be required. Well, that could be a, a real, uh, a real factor in the price of copper here. So it'll copper, I think is probably not the worst place to get involved in and, and when people ask me about, uh, well, Warney, investing in all these, the EV uh, metals, and I said, not really, no. And uh, I said, the only one I invest in really is, is copper. And they said, well, what about cobalt? And I said, well, you know, cobalt, everybody knows the political risk of cobalt and uh, being the bulk of it coming from the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I'm pretty sure the electrical vehicle industry does not want their their development um, hemmed in by the fact that cobalt is largely coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I think every battery manufacturer and every single R&D program at every single university and every major battery supplier in the world, they're all looking at minimize, if, minimizing, if not eliminating copper. The other one, <clears throat> I think that might be a little tough to uh, 
to eliminate will be uh, will be nickel. And for the last number of decades, I've had one of the world's nickel top nickel experts uh, on retainer, and we've been searching the globe for extraordinary nickel deposits, and we've uh, kind of yet to find one that we really like. The last big one was in the early 90s by Robert Freeland with Boise's Bay, the, the Boise's Bay nickel discovery. But we need a really a big world-class nickel sulfide discovery. And that means, for, you know, for uh, nickel sulfide is a type of nickel discovery, not versus nickel laterite. We need nickel sulfide. That'll be what we'll need for the batteries. And uh, that, that could be another interesting place to invest, but I have yet to find a good nickel sulfide project that I want to get involved in yet. And I've been searching for decades. So they're, they're tough to find. And Warren, one more question before you go. Do you have any interest in zinc right now? Well, zinc, I have uh, what I believe is uh, I'm invested in the largest shareholder, one of the, what I believe is one of the best zinc prospects in the world. I like it. Problem from the point of view, I, I know uh, zinc's around the $1.30 level, so there is some good demand here. Zinc is a super tough one to make money on. I've known so many people throughout my career to get, get themselves blown up in zinc. It seems to be a pretty tough one for investors to make money on. Um, but hopefully in this discovery play, I'll make some dough. But as far as, for whatever reason, zinc is a tricky one to make money on. It really is. And I've seen that throughout my career. I've watched a lot of zinc companies blow up. But despite that, I think, I think I'm involved in a, what could be a, a big zinc discovery over the next you know, five years. But we'll, we'll see if I'm lucky enough to make it a zinc discovery. So we'll see. All right. Uh, Warren's website is Rossau Asset Management. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, as always, really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing your insights with the resource investors that listened. Okay. Thanks a lot, Bill. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.